0: Is there something that you would stop doing if only you knew how? It isn't that it's complicated, it's just hard. There's so many things that we do that we know aren't good. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an attitude. Perhaps your negative thinking. We can know that these are unhealthy and perhaps even ruining certain relationships or robbing us of better opportunities, but that doesn't make it any easier for us to seem to choose better. Sometimes, I wish I could just go back to my childhood when all I needed to stop something was my mom or dad just to yell from the front seat of the car, stop it, and it worked. It always worked when my dad did it in the station wagon, when me and my five siblings were fighting in the back. It worked when mom would say it in the grocery store to me and my twin brother who were sitting in the grocery cart fighting. But for most things, it just doesn't seem to be that simple. Or maybe it is that simple. Is just not that easy. There is something to be said for a trusted voice of authority in our lives, telling us to stop it, because it's also saying that we're capable of better, that we are more. And a lot of us no longer have those trusted voices. And to add to the problem, while we can demand that others stop their actions or their attitudes, sometimes we don't give them the space they need to change. But what if someone were to stop it? What might that mean? Especially for those who've lived with us, uh, broken for so long. And imagine if one day we stopped. Whatever it was that we were doing. It can be difficult for everyone else in our lives. Some people, uh, we have this dysfunctional relationship and change can be difficult. Because people maybe don't know how to live with us if we actually did. And someone's new freedom can remind others of their own prison. Let's have a look this morning at an old story with fresh eyes. This is an encounter that is only recorded in one gospel. And even that gospel has a disclaimer before it that this story, um, that the oldest manuscripts don't necessarily contain it. I wonder if it's because it's a provocative story that maybe some didn't know how to include it. But here's how John records it. In chapter eight, starting at verse 12. He says that at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded that we should stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. What a fascinating story. A story about saints, about sinners, and about spectators. A few observations about this encounter off the top. The Pharisees and the scribes described here are not necessarily indicative of all the Pharisees. And most definitely not indicative of all Jewish people in this day. In fact, notice it says, at dawn, all the people gathered around him. In other words, the majority of Jewish people that morning in the presence of Jesus looked to him as teacher, as rabbi. Only a few, some of which happen to be leaders in one or more of the Jewish philosophies, are opposed to him. Second observation is where's the guy? It always takes two. Seems like it's a bit of a setup. They bring this woman in alone. So while the Mosaic law does give ideas about adultery, those ideas apply to both involved. But we're told from the get-go it's a setup, trying to discredit Jesus in front of all of his fans. Perhaps they're sick of Jesus portraying God as being too kind too loving, too accepting. This is a setup to have him uphold the holiness of God, the rigidity of the sacred law. But Jesus doesn't play those games. He's already said in Mark's gospel biography of of his teachings that the Sabbath was made to serve us, not us to serve it. And the same would apply to all the commands in the Jewish law. That they're meant to serve us, not to be served. See, while well, the command in the Old Testament might be that, that she be stoned under Roman law, the Jews are not allowed to actually take a life. This is a setup, and it's awkward. Third observation is that these individuals seem to interrupt Jesus who's teaching a crowd of people. They disrupt this moment by bringing this unnamed woman into the temple courts in front of everybody. And they place her in front of all to see. In other words, it's a spectacle. She is a spectacle. They want the attention of everyone at the expense of this woman's dignity. If this were to happen today, everybody would pull out their cell phones and start recording it. But Jesus doesn't react. Jesus is a non-reactive presence in the world. I want to be a non-reactive presence in the world. Jesus stoops down and begins to write or draw. It's the same word. In the Greek, he begins to do something with his finger in the dust on the floor. He was composing something. The text says that they continued to ask him while he's doing this. Can you imagine this moment? What was he writing? What was he drawing? And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he says, if anybody here is without sin, they are the ones that may throw the first stone at her. Then he stoops down and he finishes whatever it was he started. It was intentional. It was theatrical. Whichever of you has not fallen to the side, has not made a mistake. This is what the word sin means. Which of you aren't human, he's asking. One by one, they began to drop their rocks and walk away. The text says it was the older first and then the younger, till nobody was left but Jesus and this woman. I never noticed before that it wasn't just the accusers who left. The crowd as well. Had left, For some reason, everybody felt the need to leave, not just the ones who wanted this woman stoned. I wonder if it was because this moment was just so awkward. This is an uncomfortable scene. When you read it, if you miss that, you're not deep enough into the story to feel empathy for this woman, to feel the tension with Jesus and how he's responding. They leave. The older first, the text says. Now I'm going to celebrate the best in this story. I hope that they left because their wisdom persuaded them to do so. Perhaps the younger's, the younger ones still felt there might still be a spectacle to see. I don't know. Fourthly, Jesus and this woman are the only ones who remain. And Jesus asks her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no one, sir. Then neither do I go, go, leave this life of sin. How is that possible? You see, some teach that sin is a condition, a genetic disorder that we acquire at birth, but that it often means that we're helpless to be anything but sinners. But passages like this remind us that no, sin is a choice. Genesis chapter two tells us The very same thing, that it was a choice for Adam and Eve, a choice that they made. And it's the same with us. We do not sin because we're sinners. We're sinners because we sin. It's not just our circumstances, but our response to our circumstances that determines so much in our life. We can leave the things that are robbing us, that are slowly killing us, if only we believed we could. And sometimes we need permission to live differently. Sometimes our choices have ruined us to the point that we've become our mistakes. And our sense of inadequacy becomes a mentality. And that mentality is difficult to change, especially when it is a self-conscious discussion in our heads. It exists because we reflect, we ruminate, but occasionally someone interrupts our negative self-talk and they offer us a new story, a new perspective. They give us permission to believe that we can be more than the sum total of our past of our failures of our setbacks, and I think that one of the greatest influencers of people's ability to change and transform is when somebody believes they can because often they don't, and with no other voices in their life, they subconsciously create gestures that embody their own beliefs about themselves. What does Jesus do? when he tells the young fishermen that they can join him even though they're unschooled? What is Jesus implying when he tells the tax collector to leave everything to come and follow him? I'll tell you what, he's offering them a new story. This is what Jesus offers so publicly by those who he asks to be in his talmudium, those he chooses to be his disciples, his friends. Now he's criticized for this. He's criticized for even who he eats with, sinners the religious say he eats and drinks with sinners yes and by doing so he's offering them a new story to be a part of acceptance as they are with the opportunity to become so much more by saying go and leave your life of sin to this woman he's saying go and choose better choose differently why does he say go and sin no more because she can she has the ability to not sin. She can choose better. But she maybe no longer believes that. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that she's forgiven. Neither has she asked for forgiveness. This isn't about punishment, but it's about restoration. She isn't instructed that what sacrifice she needs to go make at the temple. She isn't told to beg God for forgiveness. She's merely given a chance to go and live differently, to walk away from something that is destroying her life. You see, it's important for us to understand that God can do more with sin than just forgive it. He can inspire and empower us to become more than the things that, we're, that are destroying us. Some might be critical that she's exonerated without repentance. Often grace is something that is easily celebrated when it's applied to you, but difficult to hold when it's offered to others. But I think if I pause here and think about this story for a minute, it takes a turn for me. This woman has been outed. What happens now? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. How is this woman supposed to go home? How is she supposed to face her family, her friends, or her community? How are all these things supposed to be reconciled? Jesus has offered her a new hope, but will everybody else? Will she? Does she take Jesus up on this? You see, staying is easier than returning. We've heard that in regards to those who've been incarcerated, to enter society again with a criminal past is not easy. Who's going to hire you? Who's going to rent to you? Not in my neighborhood. It can sometimes be easier to remain in a system where you're a part of a community, albeit dysfunctional and healthy, but you're received. Does this woman actually go and rectify in some ways her wrongs? Will she know how? Is her new life dependent on those things? Perhaps the road to a better life isn't a quick I'm sorry. This woman hasn't been left off the hook. The hard work is ahead. Yes, she's been offered freedom from the prison of her actions, but she still has to walk the hall and find the exit. And will anyone help? It might be assumed that she does and lives happily ever after because we're reading her story and only her and Jesus were there, so one of them told the events that morning to someone who told this writer. Notice that this woman is not the only one who is told to change. The implications are that dishonest men that brought her when, she, when, when she, she was confronted before Jesus, they were confronted with their own hypocrisy. The most righteous among you may throw the first stone, ironically, the most righteous among them chose to offer life, not death. The rest are just confronted by their own darkness. This passage is more than just a nice, tidy story about grace. We get it. If they can't save you, they can't condemn you. But there's more. But here's the predicament we find ourselves in. We might be able to relate to the woman in the story, but can we relate to her family, to her friends, to her community? And even if we sub out adultery for some other tabloid-worthy sin, and instead of a woman, maybe it's a man, regardless, whatever the failure or shortcoming, what if they want to change? Do we let them? Are we able to accept them, to help them, to encourage them, to believe in them? Can we see them for more than the wrong done? It doesn't mean that we have to allow everything to be back the way it was. Reconciliation doesn't mean ignoring wrongs done. It means first there must be truth. Then you pick up what's left and choose a way forward. Jesus doesn't give much instruction here as to what should happen next. Only a direction for her to begin to live. And if we read this story, honestly, we're left with more questions, but they're the kind of questions that we must hold. I'm trying to imagine this woman entering her village with the whispers and returning to her family, possibly, maybe to her relationships if she's had one. If she chooses to leave her old life, will they accept her? Will they help her? Or will she be made to feel even more shame than she already has? Who's going to believe in her? And will she then be able to believe she's worthy of more? But Jesus here tells her in not so many words, That she is worth more than this. That's why he saves her life and offers her more. We have a shame problem in our culture. Social media makes it worse. We somehow think it's okay to shame people who've done things wrong and somehow think that it makes everything okay. Does it satisfy our need for justice or make us feel better about our own mistakes? Because the attention is on the really, really bad things other people do. What if when caught... Some people might really recognize that they've done wrong, that they've hurt others. But there's no mechanism to allow change. They're afforded the chance, or are they afforded the chance for more? And if they choose that, do the rest of us understand how hard that's going to be? And not just for them, but for us as well. See, it always takes two, both for someone to be convicted of anything and also for reconciliation to happen. And Jesus gives us the chance to choose which side of the line we wish to stand on. But he gives no specific instructions, only a direction, it seems, to move towards freedom, to move towards love, and in doing so, creating a new life, a better life, and not just for us. And to participate in the creation of a new world.